Well, as usual, you have um, a handout that contains notes that uh, have far more material than I will cover in our talk. I often just kind of skip along the highlights in the sermon, uh, but there is food for thought in the notes, and I invite you to, uh, to read them uh, later on. Not during the sermon. I went to lunch with somebody this week who confessed that they were reading the notes rather than listening to my sermon. I thought, well, either way, you're probably getting um, good information about the Bible, but um, try and follow along with me, and I'll try to make it as easy as possible. There is an outline of the, uh, the sermon, a one-page outline, and I might actually have the agenda of the annual general meeting here rather than the outline. Has somebody got a spare outline so that I can keep track? I'm going to rob you again, Harold. Thanks very much. Welcome back from Montreal. Yes, welcome back from Montreal. Well, our passage for today is normally apropos for Palm Sunday. But we have been preaching through uh, Matthew's gospel. And um, I, I simply couldn't part from preaching uh, this passage on the first Sunday of, Ad, uh, the first Sunday of Lent even though we'll return to it probably in a few weeks. So you're going to hear this passage uh, again in about a month's time. But this is an important passage, a crucial passage. In fact, as I recall, it occurs in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each Gospel writer has his own perspective on the story. The story of Jesus is so powerful and so significant that the Spirit of God passed over many of these episodes two or three times, and the Spirit inspired different gospel writers to reflect upon them. And I have organized our thoughts under the message, the word is out, the Messiah is here. Jesus had been keeping his Messiahship a secret for a long time. He did so, most people believe, and I think rightly so, that the word Messiah was so loaded that he dare not use it. It would be like a gun going off in a far different direction than the one that Jesus designed by being the Messiah. And so he referred to himself as the Son of Man. But in our passage today, all of the gloves come off, and nothing could be more clear than that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. The word is out, the Messiah is here, but what sort of Messiah is this? Well, the word Messiah, of course, is a word for a specially anointed king, one who was promised in the Old Testament, one who would be a descendant of King David, and one who would have an everlasting rule. That's a tall order, an everlasting rule. Whose dynasty can rule forever? Well, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and the eternal Son of God, Jesus, continues to fulfill the promise of a fulfilled Messiah. Jews today continue to look for the Messiah. It was about 10 years ago that the famous rabbi who headed up a seminary in Israel and was very well respected announced that he knew who the Messiah was. And he asked that the announcement of who the Messiah would be would not be announced until a year after his funeral. So he died, 
And hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem and all across Israel attended the funeral of the great rabbi. And then they waited patiently for a year, and then they found out why the rabbi asked that a year go by before his announcement of the name of the Messiah was disclosed. He said the Messiah is Yeshua Hanotsri, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, uh, jaws dropped all over Israel, and news media were very quick to try to point out that he didn't quite say that Jesus was the Messiah. He used well-known Jewish code language that any Jew couldn't mistake. He had a number of sentences, and each one began with a letter that indicated, as you spelt out the first uh, letter of each word, Yeshua Hanotsri, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, he didn't, he didn't exactly announce that. There's some debate about whether that's what he meant. There was no debate whatsoever about what he meant. My friends, Jews today continue to look for Jesus or look for the Messiah, and some of them are finding him in the Messiah. And who could be a more clear candidate than the one that we read about in the pages before us? Jesus had predicted three times that he would go to Jerusalem and that he would begin to suffer. And last week, we saw the announcement of the loneliness of the passion narrative beginning. Jesus felt alone and disenfranchised when he disclosed that he was the Messiah, only to find that people continued to be preoccupied with their own grandeur and their own wealth. And last week, we ended off with two brothers who wanted to be great. And at the end of the episode, we met two blind men who received their sight. And it was these blind people who followed him. And now at the beginning of our story today, Jesus talks about, now that he's approaching Jerusalem, he directs two disciples. And he gives them directions. We know the story well. Go into the village in front of you, and straightway you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone should say what gives, you will say the Lord has need of them. Then he will dispatch them right away. Notice again that Jesus is predicting the future. Bethpage is some distance away, and he tells his disciples, this is where you're going to go, and this is what you're going to find out. This is the conversation that's going to be had, and this is what he's going to say, and this is what you're going to do. This is why in verse 4, and we pass over it so quickly and without much notice because we've seen it before in Matthew, but in verse 4 we read, this took place so that the word through the prophet I think I've been speaking loudly enough that you probably have heard me. <laughs> okay. Okay, thanks. Uh, thank you, Kevin. So Jesus here, if you notice carefully, is above all a prophet. Uh, normally when Matthew says, this took place so that the word through the prophet might be fulfilled, some event has already happened. But here Jesus just says it's going to happen. And in his saying it's going to happen, it is fulfilled. 
It reminds one of the beginning of the book of Genesis when God says, let there be light. And in his saying, let there be light, there was light. Jesus pronounces it and it's prophecy fulfilled. And the prophecy, of course, points to the Messiah. In Zechariah chapter 9, there is a prophecy about a king coming, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the male offspring of a beast of burden. So what we see here in this passage is Jesus as a prophet and as the Messiah. And as soon as we read these words from Zechariah chapter 9, we know that a thing called a type scene is being fulfilled. What is a type scene? Well, I think you know what a type scene is. If you've ever watched a Western and uh, the sheriff walks through those swinging doors and he says to the bad guy on the street at sundown, you know what's going to happen. At sundown, there are going to be two people on either end of the street with their guns and they're going to have a shootout. You can, you can predict it. Well, at least twice previously in the Old Testament, when a king was anointed, the king of Israel, uh, once in the case of Jehu and once in the case of Solomon, they rode into town on a donkey. And so this is a repetition of this scene, so that now everyone knows without any question that Jesus is the Messiah. So they bring the donkey and the colt. Thanks, Kevin. They bring the donkey and the colt, and they put their clothes on the cloaks on them, and he sat on them. Again, in fulfillment of part of the type scene, which was evident in the Old Testament. This is what happened on a previous occasion. And the great crowd spread their cloaks on the road, whereas others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed behind were shouting, Hosanna! to the son of David, the same words that are going to occur in the next episode in chapter, in verse 15, in verse 16, sorry, in verse 15, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is both an expression of praise and a cry for help. It was originally a cry for help that became an expression of, of praise. And it probably does a double purpose in this section. When the people say, Hosanna to the son of David, they're saying, Messiah, we are glad that you've come. We know that you're the Messiah. We are so excited that you're coming. You are coming on behalf of God. Hosanna in the highest. And they're saying, God be praised even in heaven. Among the angels, this is a glorious moment. And then we're told in verse 10 that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. This, again, is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah. When the Son of Man comes, when the Messiah comes, the Mount of Olives is going to be split in two. There's literally going to be kind of a, well, not literally, but at least figuratively, there's going to be a splitting of the Mount of Olives, half of it moving to the north and half of it moving to the south, so that water can flow down to the sea of Gal or to the Dead Sea and fertilize and water the Jordan River. Who is this? The crowd kept saying, this is the prophet Jesus, the one from Nazareth of Galilee. On Tuesday of this week, uh, the Air France flight magazine called Envol revealed that an archaeologist 
believed that she had finally discovered the tomb of Alexander the Great. A French archaeologist named Calliope Limnios Papacosta, uh, actually, she's a Greek archaeologist, sorry, it's a French magazine, but a Greek archaeologist, says that after several years of research in Alexandria, northern Egypt, she had uncovered a statue and an ancient Rome, an ancient road. And following further excavations, her team of research had discovered a large building, which they believe was the tomb of Alexander the Great. Now, this is significant because Alexander the Great, about 300 years previously, had conquered Jerusalem. And he kind of did the same thing that Jesus did. Only when he came into Jerusalem, he was mounted on an enormous stallion, making a statement. I, Alexander the Great, am here as the mighty conqueror. And he indeed um, conquered uh, the city. And I thought, what a contrast. They have big statues of Alexander the Great. And finally, they found his grave, which has been... Maybe they haven't, maybe they have, but it's buried under the dust. Some of us have never even heard of Alexander the Great. Popular emperors come and go. Their giant statues find a way into a corner here and there or get buried. There's one in Queens Park that the government of India returned because it had one of those big generals on a giant horse coming to conquer the land. And it was a colonial symbol. And after time, they said, nah, we don't want this. You can have it back. So here in the case of Jesus, we have the humble Messiah who is all powerful riding on a donkey. His legs are kind of dangling down. They're maybe a few feet off the ground. The thing's got big ears. Nobody's looking up. They're looking straight across and the thing can't barely talk. I have this theory that donkeys were arrogant and they told God that they wanted to learn to speak by themselves. So God said, fine, you go ahead. And ever since then, they've been going, oh, oh. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is sitting on this idiotic-looking beast, legs dangling down near the ground, and people are cutting ordinary branches and laying it before him. The picture is almost um, jocular. But of course, as we've seen, is loaded with significance is loaded with significance because there's no doubt that this is the Messiah. But what kind of Messiah is he? Let me ask you a question. What do you bring to work? Well, you probably say, depends uh, on what we do for work. Um, I'm a carpenter. I bring my toolbox. Um, I'm a tow truck driver. I take my tow truck onto the highway, and I've got chains, and I've got hooks. I'm an artist. I bring my paintbrushes. I'm, I'm a Vladimir Zelensky. I spend all day pleading the European Union and anybody else to bring tanks to my country so that we can defeat the enemy that is attacking us. What do you take to work? And what does it say about you and what you do? Hazel McCallion died not long ago, and she is famous for many things. One of the things that she was famous for was making fun of a mayor who was the mayor of a city like one-tenth the size of hers for driving to City Hall in a limousine. And she says, what's with this? I bring my car and I park it in the parking lot of City Hall and I get out of it and I go and do my business. There's a certain humility that comes with that that says a lot about who Hazel McCallion was. My point is this. 
Vladimir Zelensky, in order to fight a national battle, is pleading for tanks. Jesus's point was to bring absolutely nothing except the show of riding on a donkey so that people would know who he was. How is this man going to conquer Palestine? He's going to do it by not carrying so much as a pea shooter because he's going to do it in an entirely different way than anyone saw. He's going to do it by fulfilling his own prophecy. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you want to be first, you will be last. If you want to be the greatest, you must be the servant of all. And so he comes, and he, he becomes grossly unpopular among particularly the political leaders, and among many others, including Judas, because he wasn't coming to conquer. He wasn't going to be another Alexander the Great. He was going to be the savior of the world and the one who brought salvation to absolutely everyone. My friends, the Messiah was not the one we were expecting, is not the one that the Jews were ex expecting, but we got a rich combination of a Messiah and a prophet. We saw that at the beginning of the story. We see it at the end of the story when people say, who is this? I mean, the ground just shook. People are all excited and they say, oh, he's a prophet from Galilee. He didn't say he was the king. He said, prophet from Galilee. I don't know. Jesus fulfills the imagery of both a Messiah and a prophet. The Messiah is a humble king who comes to conquer in the most unusual sort of way. And he also comes as the prophet Jeremiah and the suffering servant of Israel to atone for our sins, to die on the cross, to set us free, not from a foreign nation, but from ourselves, from our sin, from our alienation from God. So what sort of a savior is this? He's one who is both the powerful promised one and yet humble and accessible. We would find him easy to relate to, much as the citizens of Mississauga did with Hazel McCallion. Children would just be inclined to go and jump on his lap. Wonderfully accessible, incredibly powerful. We see also that he is one who brings freedom from oppression. The Messiah could do no less. And here I'm at the second point in my outline. Yet the freedom from oppression is not local, it's not national, but is it, it is eternal and it is spiritual. 2,000 years after Jesus has gone on his march, people day after day continue to confess that they find peace and forgiveness by knowing this Jesus and by coming to realize that he has died for their sins. He has forgiven them their sins. If all we do is simply embrace the gift, to throw down a branch as it were, and to say, we worship you, Jesus is Lord. We thank you for coming as the Messiah and for dying for us. And then he makes it possible for Jew and Gentile to know and enjoy God. And with this, I want to turn quickly to the second part of our episode, verses 12 to 17. We know it as the cleansing of the temple, but it's something far more significant than the cleansing of the temple. 
You see, when a king came into a city and conquered it, he would go to the local shrine and he would declare his sovereignty over that local place of worship, which Jesus here does. But Jesus, in effect, by turning over the, the money changers' uh, tables and the stools and setting the pigeons free and saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are turning it into a cave of robbers, he, in effect, is saying the temple is over. It's done with. He's predicting the destruction of the temple. And then in verses 14 to 16, we read what at first appear to be two kind of obscure notes. Well, the blind and the lame came into the temple. There were also children who were calling out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The same thing that was said in the previous paragraph. People, again, are indignant. But Jesus turns and he says, do you hear what they're saying? Have you never read from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you, God, have ordained praise for yourself? Jesus here is predicting the end of the temple, and he is announcing significantly his dissatisfaction with the sacrificial system. He's saying it's corrupt. The time is now for the sacrificial system to be purified. And he's on his way to the cross to do just that. You remember earlier in Matthew, Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here. So Jesus is going to allow the temple to be destroyed by the Romans, and he is going to become that new temple, kind of a universal hub for anyone who wants to have a relationship with God, whether they are Jew or Gentile, whether they are lame or blind. Such people were not permitted into the temple. It was impure. And children, those little ones like you and me, we can come to Jesus as the new temple and find fellowship with him. He's as accessible to us today as he ever has been before. And the temple is centralized in Jesus, the body of Christ. God is here, my friends. His sacrifice has been made on behalf of you and me. And the sacrificial system is accessible in a way that it never was before by simply putting our faith in Jesus Christ and saying as one of the little children would, as, as a humble person would, which we all need to be before God. God, I like to pretend that I'm a big, you know, big shot who's all together. I'm none of these. I'm a little child and I need you to save me from my sins, which is what you've already done. I want to accept the gift of salvation, which you offered when you died on the cross. My friends, this isn't the Messiah they were expecting. Let me tell you, it's the Messiah we all need. And it's the Messiah we got. Hallelujah. Amen.